Good morning, saints. So uh, I realized last night that my sermon was way too long, so I cut out like 40% of it. Um, it was way too long. Um, and, and Kathy didn't know it, but that scripture that she read was one of the ones that uh, got cut. So nice job. Yeah. We have, since the beginning of this year, been focusing... It says it's on. Nope. Here, I'll shut it off. Check, one, two. Okay. All right, well, I'll just keep talking and we'll see what happens. Um, We have been focusing on two major themes this year, who we are in Christ and... uh, utilizing, exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so this morning, I want to talk about both of those. I'm going to kind of combine them together. But it's going to be a little different because we're, we're like going to start here and we're going to end here. We're going to do this kind of meandering journey to get there. And I hope this is going to work. Um, I like preaching here because I don't have to feel like I got to get up and really impress you because you guys all know me. So we're just going to go for it and see what happens. So... Hope that's okay. Um, I've entitled this Spreading the Kingdom of God, and you'll understand toward the end why it's entitled that. Father, we invite you to speak into us by your word and your spirit. Lord, we trust you that, that we're not just gathered here right now in memorial of a, a Savior who's gone on, but you are here in our midst, and you are working in us, and we trust you to work in us even in this time. Amen. Brennan Manning in his book Abba's Child said this, God is relentlessly tender and compassionate toward us just as we are. Not in spite of our sins and faults, that would not be total acceptance, but with them. Though God does not condone or sanction evil, he does not withhold his love because there is evil in us. What a statement. We have to see ourselves as children who are, who are accepted and loved by the Father. I think you know, most of my sermon has already been preached here this morning, honestly. Accepted and loved by the Father. Regardless of what our state might be, regardless of, of what we've been doing or where we've been, we are his children because he loves us. And to that end, I want to share with you a little concept from the story of the prodigal. I I shared this at a church recently and I realized, I don't know that I've ever shared it like this at our, in our congregation. So I just wanted to put this in here because I think it's, it's important for us to understand this idea. I'm not going to go through the whole story of the prodigal. It's one of my favorite stories that Jesus told. Um, But if you remember, there was this son who was apparently an adult and he wanted his inheritance early and his father gave it to him and so he went off to a far country and he squandered all of it and within a fairly short time it was all gone and he was destitute and so just to try to make ends meet he's takes a job feeding pigs but he realizes in the midst of that that his father's hired servants are doing better than what he is so he decides he's going to go back home So if you pick up the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 18, it says this, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, 
Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now stop right there. I don't know if it's just me, but to me, you know, when I read something like this, I like to put myself into the story. If this is me, what am I going to do here? Well, I know it's a long journey back home. I've gone to a far country is what, it's, what he said, all right? So to me, that's at least a two or three day journey back home. It could be two or three weeks, I don't know, but it's a, it's a, it's a ways. And so I've got time, and I know that this is what I want to say to my father when I get home. These are the words that I want to say. And so I'm going to be rehearsing those words as I'm walking along. When I get into that position, I don't want my emotions or my father's emotions. Maybe he's going to be angry. I don't know. I don't want anything to preempt this presentation that I'm about to make. I want to make sure this is said clearly and correctly. And so as I'm journeying along, I'm going through these words in my, my head. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. I want to make sure that I'm ready for that I've only got one chance with dad. I want to make sure I'm ready for that that meeting. All right, you with me? And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Am I the only one that noticed that there's something missing in there? No, 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 no. He, he, he missed the whole sentence about treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, all right, maybe it's just my overactive imagination. I don't know. I do have this inclination that when we get to the other side of eternity, that there is going to be a place there that we get to watch all of the Bible stories. And I don't know that it's going to be videos. I think it's really, uh, honestly, I think it's going to be more like the holodeck on the Enterprise where we get to, you know, See, when, when we're reading this, all we get are the words. And Jesus is this master storyteller. I'm pretty sure that there was some excitement that he used at times and facial expressions to convey what's going on. And so here he is, he's telling this story. And I don't think Jesus forgot those words. Are you with me? I don't think he forgot to put them in. I think what happened is the father interrupted him. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, I think Jesus put it in that fast because what I believe happened, and I, obviously this is not a true story, all right, but the, the, the fact that he's telling it means that it's important. I think what happens is the father says, son, none of that makes any difference. You're home. You're my son and I love you. You understand? And think about what, what he said. He said, get the, get the best robe and bring it and put it on him. He, he's been feeding pigs. He's been traveling for days. My guess is that if he's lost all of his money, if he had a second set of clothing, he sold it so he could eat. He's got nothing. So he's dirty, he's smelly. Maybe these clothes that he's wearing are rags. I don't know. But his father says, put the best robe on him. Cover his shame. Put on that robe of righteousness, if you will. That's what he does to you and to me. He covers all of our uncleanness. Put a ring on his finger. That's not just a nice piece of jewelry. That is, in this culture, a signet ring, which means that he is not only accepted in the family, but he has authority in the family. 
That's you and me. Kill the fatted calf. You know, that one seems a little odd to me because all we've heard about in this story is three people. There's the father and two sons. I mean, even if they're really big guys, they are not going to put a dent in the fatted calf. Are you with me? I mean, they might have really big appetites. But, the, but see, what I think went without saying in this culture is that there are other people involved. There's likely a mom. If there's two adult sons, there's likely some adult girls too who maybe have families. Maybe they live around there. And all of them and, and the neighbors are all coming together to celebrate that this son, this brother, this neighbor, this friend is home. The son who was dead and is now alive is back home. The father says, son, none of that other stuff makes any difference. You're home. And I love you. See, that's what Jesus is trying to convey here. He loves you just like you are. And of course, we know that. We just don't often believe that. Came across a story about a woman named Linda, true story. Although she was a Christian, she only saw God as being holy and just, a, a righteous judge. And then some things happened in her personal life and her life just kind of fell apart. And she, she couldn't find any consolation in a God who was high and exalted but wasn't caring. Are you with me? And so a friend of hers tried to explain the love of God to her. And she wasn't really getting it, wasn't really taking. She, I mean, she knew, she had heard that God loved her, but she had never really experienced that. And so, so it wasn't re- she wasn't really getting it, but she wanted to get it. And so what she did is she looked up every scripture she could find about God's love and wrote it down on a three-by-five card. This was before smartphones. And kept those with her. And the person writing this story, she said this, when the doubts, unbelief, and the enemy's taunts came in, she quickly confessed and repented of them, whipped out those cards, and read out loud how much God loved her. Finally, she chose to step out in faith and believe what God's word said. Even though she didn't feel anything yet, she persevered by faith, and God honored her obedience by eventually aligning her feelings with her choice. See, I think that maybe some of us here need to do something that radical. That maybe we need to remind ourselves again and again and again. Maybe write down those things and pull them out when we need it to remind ourselves that there is indeed a God who loves us. I told you it was going to kind of be a meandering journey. So let me, let me hit this from a different angle. One quick question. Are you justified Good answer, good quick answer. <laughs> Romans 5.1, it says, since we have been justified by faith. Romans 5.9 says, we have now been justified by his blood. 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.24, that we might be justified by faith. Yes, you, we are justified. So if you're justified, if you understand the meaning of that word, it means that you have been made just. Another way of saying it is that you have been made righteous. Scripture says 
that the just shall live by faith. Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. The ESV, the English Standard Version, says the righteous shall live by faith. So if the, if the just shall live by faith, if the righteous shall live by faith, and if you and I are the righteous, we're the just, then how should we be living? Good answer. Okay, maybe just as importantly, how should we not be living? That's a good one. I would say by sight or experience. Are you with me? If we're living by faith, okay. All right, so what does that mean practically for our lives? Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4, it says this, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there it is again, God loves you. He's trying to convey that here over and over today. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want to zero in on that, that last section there seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Have you ever gone to Bush Stadium? Okay, it's kind of a cool place, but have you ever been up in the arch and looked down at it? You get a very different perspective on it. Are you following me? See, I think that's like the difference between our normal human perspective and seeing from God's perspective. If we're seated in heavenly places, then our perspective should be different, right? Honestly, I think that our normal human perspective is like we're looking through a piece of glass that's all smoky. We're not seeing clearly. We're not seeing accurately, if you will. But seeing from, from God's perspective should change all of that, right? So if we're not seeing from that viewpoint, then how do we get there? It's from his word. Think about it. If the Bible really is God's word, then uh, how, how can we get his perspective from his viewpoint, it's by, by reading it, by immersing ourselves in it, I think, but more importantly, maybe using it as a lens to see everything else the way that we really should. His word gives us his viewpoint on life. David Kreuter shared some of that last week, right? The Bible shows us how we should see ourselves, how we should see others, how we should live. So if we're seated with Christ in heavenly places, then his word becomes like a, a portal that we look through so that we can see everything else more clearly. Does that make sense? And so, he, he, and here's the real point. When we see clearly from God's perspective, then we need to line up our thinking and our feelings with what his word says. Are you following me? So think about this. If you're living by faith, it's going gonna, it's gonna to change your life, right? It has to if we're living by faith because we're seeing differently. It's going to cause adjustments in our, our thinking and, 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 and ultimately in, in how we do things. You're going to become more like Jesus, if you will. So how does that happen? 1 Peter 1.4, it says this, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. If you were a partaker of the divine nature, would that make you different? Of course it would, clearly. So how do you get there? It's through his promises. It's through believing the truth of his word. It's by, by living in faith and aligning your thinking and, and, and your, your, your way of looking at things with what the word says, not from just a worldly perspective. I recently read an interesting statement. Faith is daring the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see. I like that. Daring the soul to go beyond what the eyes can see. So how does this, how does this play out in 
uh, put this in the context of what we're talking about, how does this play out in, in utilizing and exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, if we're going to utilize, if we're going to exercise, if we're going to use the gifts of the Spirit, then we need to know what the Spirit is saying, okay? So John 10, 27 says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice. Now, some of you are thinking, well, I don't know if I really hear God's voice. But see, that's because you're not looking through that lens of his word. You're looking just from your normal, everyday human perspective, your worldly perspective. See, the, the word says, my sheep hear my voice. Amen. Are you a sheep? Amen. Guess what? According to the word, you hear his voice. You following me? 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. You know, if we, if we have the mind of Christ, are we hearing him? Clearly, okay? Now, maybe we don't understand that all the time. I get that. So if we, if we hear his voice, if we have the mind of Christ, does that mean that every thought that we have is from God? You tell me. No, no, clearly not, okay? But the more that we understand the truth of what the word says, that we do hear his voice, and the more that we step out and listen, intentionally listen to what we believe God is saying, if we practice that, if you will, I mean, how do you learn anything in life? Practice. How, how do you learn music? How do you learn how to do math? How do you learn how to bake a cake? It's by practicing. It's by doing it. It's by getting in there and trying it up. Oh, that didn't work. Let's try this, right? And so it's the same thing here. You want to hear God's voice. He promises you do. We just need to figure out how to filter out the other voices. And so we need to, to practice that. We need to work at it, if you will. Honestly, if we have the mind of Christ, I think we hear his voice a lot more than we think we do. I do. You know, last Sunday morning, um, Ashley Kreuter was sitting back there just innocently where she normally is sitting, and she felt like God dropped something into her heart that she needed to pray for Jane Miller, Steve's mom, who was sitting kind of up in front of her there. And specifically that she needed to pray for Jane Miller's arthritis. Now, Ashley doesn't know Jane. She has no idea whether she has arthritis. And so she was a little concerned, maybe even fearful. And she says, all right, God, if this is really you, you need to confirm this. And Ashley said, it's not 30 seconds later, Warren steps up here onto the platform, somebody who's experienced in hearing the voice of God, and he says, somebody here has arthritis, and I need to pray for you. And what happened? Jane Miller says, it's me. See, I'm pretty sure that the next time Ashley gets an inclination like that, that she's going to be more willing to step out. Are you with me? We're, we're hearing. We're moving on those, those things. I recently... Uh, Recently read a book, it's entitled Dirty Glory, which is a really weird title, but um, it's subtitled Go Where Your Best Prayers Take You. And it really impacted me a lot, and so I actually had Connie order copies for some of the other elders. I'm gonna share with you a couple of things from that book this morning as I'm sharing. Here's one, I think, amazing story. And the guy that wrote it, his, his name is Pete Gregg. He's actually from, um, from England. That helps explain some of the phraseology that he uses in some places. In the U.S. state of Arizona, an accountant called Deb Welch made a momentous decision to leave her well-paid job and coordinate a year of 24-7 prayer throughout the Grand Canyon state. 
Just 34 days into this initiative, the Super Bowl was due to touch down in Arizona's University of Phoenix Stadium. One of the new, newly mobilized intercessors received a terrible premonition about the event. In a dream, she saw the stadium filled with blood. Taking the nightmare seriously, Deb dispatched a small team of prayer warriors to the stadium to pray preemptively against disaster. On the day of the game, Deb joined almost 100 million viewers watching the biggest sporting event in America, but her nerves had little to do with the fate of either the New York Giants or the New England Patriots. The contest passed uneventfully. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers performed at halftime, and the Giants surprised everyone by defeating the Patriots, and Deb breathed a sigh of relief. In fact, she felt a little foolish for having needlessly dispatched that well-meaning team of intercessors to pray at the stadium. But then came the news. Media outlets began reporting that behind the scenes at the Super Bowl, a bloody massacre had been averted. A disturbed 35-year-old named Kurt William Havelock, furious at having been denied permission for a Halloween-themed horror bar in nearby Tempe, had mailed a series of rambling threats to media outlets the day before the game. The Los Angeles Times, New York Times, Phoenix New Times, and Associated Press had all received chilling missives from Havelock pledging swift and bloody revenge and even vowing to slay your children. On the day of the Super Bowl, Havelock drove himself to the University of Phoenix Stadium armed with an AR-15 semi-automatic assault rifle and 200 rounds of ammunition. He had retained one final note on his person, do not resuscitate. Havelock had no way of knowing that he was parking his car that day in the exact location where a random group of Christians had gathered to pray against bloodshed. Armed to the teeth and intending to kill as many people as possible, the would-be mass murderer unexpectedly experienced something that he would later describe in court as a change of heart. He broke down in tears and phoned his father. He was sobbing hysterically, his dad recalled. He said, I've done something terribly wrong. Havelock ultimately handed himself into the police without a shot being fired. Somehow Deb's Sensitivity to the spirit and the intercessions of her little, little prayer team seem to have helped disarm a potential killer, almost certainly saving many lives and diverting an atrocity that would have been witnessed by almost 100 million people in real time, billions more online and on the front page of every newspaper around the world the next day. I am convinced that God is speaking to his people in profound ways and we need to be listening. There are things that he is saying into our lives that we need to be paying attention to. Now, now please understand, that doesn't mean that we're all going to hear his voice the same way. We're all different. God deals with us all differently. Another quote from that book, Pete Gregg said, everyone encounters him differently at different times. There is no formula. Abraham waited 99 years for his epiphany while David was anointed unexpectedly one day in his teens. Isaiah was mysteriously transported into heaven, but Anna simply stared into the face of a baby and knew. Blind Bartimaeus received his sight, but Saul was blinded to see. An encounter with God may be dramatic as it was for Paul on the Damascus Road, but for most it's a gentler Emmaus Road process, more like the gradual dawning of day than fireworks in the night. So what I'm telling you is don't, don't just listen to what somebody else has said happened to their life and as a result then... Uh, that, that must be how it works. Not God may speak to you in the same way he does somebody else. All right, I get that. But not necessarily. It may be totally different. And so you need to, to allow God's individualistic way of dealing with us to deal with you. 
But I do think that it's common for God to, can I say, drop things into us, to, to put things into, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to move on what the Holy Spirit is saying, then somehow what he's saying has to get into us. You, you follow me, all right? Nehemiah 7, 5, it says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Then God put it into my heart. That's apparently legit phrasing right there that, that, we can, that he does that. He, he puts things into it. And again, we're all different, so it may not look like or may not sound like what somebody else has said or described, but regardless of how those things get in us, uh, I, I want us to, to recognize that th- those things should not be taken for granted. The promptings of the Holy Spirit are important for us in our lives. Don't, don't ever think that the words that you speak to somebody else on behalf of God are insignificant because they're not. I have a, I have a number of friends on Facebook that I have no idea who they are. Any, am I the only one that's like that? Um, and... As a result of that, uh, most of those people I simply unfollow after they have asked to be my friend. I, I don't, really don't care what they had for breakfast or, you know, whatever. Th- those things are really, st- because I don't know them at all. But one person recently friended me, and I, and I don't unfollow them until they actually post, if I see a post, and then I, then I click unfollow. But her post, really fascinating, she said this. Several weeks ago, the Lord told me that I would be meeting a Delilah, and I needed to pay attention. I won't go into all the details, but today, as I was being introduced to person after person, a woman took my hand and said, I'm Delilah. Merlin, that's apparently this woman's husband, knew of the word about Delilah because I told him when I received it weeks ago. So when he heard her name, he looked at me, and we knew something was up. I walked outside and asked God to show me what I needed to know about Delilah. I heard the word of God in my spirit, walked back over to her, and gave her the word. Her head just dropped, her chin falling to her chest. She said, God knew. You didn't know, but God knew. She raised her head and just kept staring at me as she processed what had, just been, what had just happened. To me, it wasn't much, but to her, it was the world because God reached her and answered something that only she knew existed in her heart or life at that time. Don't hold back when God says go. Just go. And I would agree. When, when the Lord is speaking into your life, do what he's telling you to do. I think those things are, are often far more significant than what we re- recognize in the here and now. They can have eternal consequences. So, so we, we practice here in this kind of incubator setting so that when we go out there, see, I think ultimately the gifts aren't just for here. I think they're for out there. So, so if I can go back to I think as, as Ashley listens and is willing to speak here, I think there's going to come a day where maybe she's walking through schnooks and the Spirit's going to say, hey, that woman over there needs to hear about the hope that you have. And she's going to leave that grocery store with a new sister in Christ that day. Are you following me? And that's not just for her. It's for all of us. So we're listening to his voice speaking to us. So, so we've talked about those two primary themes of, of who we are in Christ, that, that we're ch- his children, and, and using the gifts of the Spirit. And here's how I think, at least in part, those two things um, fit together, if you will. When we recognize that there is a God in heaven who loves us way beyond anything we can imagine, then 
we are able to step out and use those gifts because we love others. See, that really has to be the motivation for the gifts of the Spirit. We, we, don't, we don't use the gifts of, of the Holy Spirit so that people will think we're more spiritual or so that, uh, so that, so that we can fix them. No, we, we, we do it because we love them. And that has to be the motivation. So, so when I recognize that there is a God who loves me, who cares, who, he brought me into his family. He made me his child. See, at that point, then I don't really care what you think about me. See, we spend way too much time trying to impress other people, getting, trying to get them to like us. You know what? When I recognize that God loves me, I don't really care what you think about me. Don't take it personally. But I'm accepted by God Almighty. Why would I even be slightly concerned about you and what you think of me? Are you with me? But at that point, because I have, have received that, that all-encompassing love, that makes me able to love you totally, unreservedly. Are you following me? And that needs to be the, the motivation behind what we're doing. How many times in Scripture does it tell us that, that Jesus was moved by compassion and therefore acted? I mean, you've got a few Scriptures there um, in your notes, but... That's just a few. There's other times that, that that same thing happened. It's because he cared. And I don't even get the impression, as I look at those scriptures, I don't even get the impression that it was so much that he wanted to see them uh, get saved or whatever terminology you want to use as he was simply expressing his love for them. He was simply caring for them right where they're at. And that needs to be our motivation as we as we utilize the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we do it because we love. And see, when, we, when that's our motivation, then it's automatically gonna change people's lives. It's gonna happen. One more story from Dirty Glory and Pete Gregg. He said this, a beautiful embodiment of this pr principle of transformation through acceptance. So what he's talking about there is that we are, people's lives are being changed because we love them, okay? Beautiful embodiment of this principle of transformation through acceptance emanates from a prayer community run by the Salvation Army in Vancouver's downtown east side. This radical community in one of North America's poorest postcodes once prayed nonstop for three and a half years. Everyone who visits the community, even just for a day, can see how deeply they have embraced their neighborhood and that the motivation and methodology at the heart of their mission is nothing more complicated than love. Aaron White, who co-leads the prayer community, explains this motiva his motivations very simply. The people we love are being left to die from AIDS, drug overdoses, violence, or just plain old poverty. So in other words, they have embraced these people so much, they love them so much, that they want to help them right where they're at. Even, even though, those that are not Christians, they're reaching out to them and they're loving them in practical and tangible ways. So when Aaron and Cherie's son Noah was born, they decided to invite the entire neighborhood to help them dedicate him to the Lord. A small crowd gathered in Crab Park beside Vancouver Harbor. Respectable family members mingling with recovering addicts, prostituted women, the lonely elderly, those who are mentally vulnerable, and homeless men with dirt under their nails. Aaron and Cherie passed their newborn baby around this maverick circle, asking each person in turn to hold him and to give little Noah their personal blessing. Some of them, especially some of the 
especially some of the men, held back, feeling too dirty to touch the baby, too unreliable to be entrusted with holding him, too sinful to speak anything good over his pristine life. They tried to exclude themselves from praying, but Aaron and Cherie were adamant, insisting that everyone should touch the little boy and give him their unique benediction. Some of the men wept as they held our baby and prayed their stumbling prayers over him, recalls Aaron. In fact, years later, some of them still talk about that moment with tears in their eyes. Aaron and Cherie entrusted their precious, perfect baby to all those broken people that day because they believe in transformation through acceptance. It wasn't a gimmick or a technique. They were seeking to give dignity, recognizing relationship, invoking goodness, and practicing the power of contagious holiness in a simple yet radical way. Wow. You've heard me talk about in the past about how Jesus would touch unclean people and according to the law, he should have been, become unclean, but that never happened, never once. Instead, those unclean people became clean. And not only did that happen for Jesus, but it happened for his followers and it happens for you and for me. As we go out and touch people's lives, we are bringing the kingdom of God into their lives. I have been um, very blessed in many ways by the Bible Project videos, most of them pretty short, um, great information. But one that I watched recently, uh, I thought the animation said as much as what the actual words in the video did. And so I took two sections of that video, got rid of the words, put a music bed kind of behind it. Um, I'm going to show that to you. It's just a couple minutes long. And basically what you're going to see is you're going to see Jesus ministering and what happens as he ministers. And then you're going to see his people and what happens there. Can you play that video? understand the title now spreading the kingdom of God see I think that's the way it should be because God Almighty is our father because he is with us wherever we go because his light overcomes the darkness because his grace is more powerful than sin he is your father you do hear his voice he has called you to step out and speak on his behalf he has called you to dispel the darkness with the light that he has placed inside of you. Let's pray. Father, we today understand a bit more of your kingdom and the way that it's supposed to work. Lord, too often we have been guided by our own thinking, our own feelings, instead of by the truth of your word. Lord, forgive us for that. But God, we ask that we would be more and more, we would be people of faith. 
that we would trust the truth of your word, that we do indeed hear your voice, that we do have your mind, that you are at work within us. And so that when we step out, Lord, that you are speaking in and through us. Lord, may that be more and more of a reality in each of us each day. Amen.